Welcome to Real Issues, Real Conversations, a podcast from Ohio Humanities. In this series, we explore democracy and the informed system. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and today I'm joined by Nina Ellis and Luke Dennis of WYSO, or WISO as it's generally called, which is the Greater Dayton Area's only NPR news station. Luke Dennis, who has a background in arts and music administration, is WISO's general manager. Nina Ellis was Luke's predecessor in that role. She's a multi-award winning radio documentary maker of several decades standing. She's also the president of Miami Valley Public Media, the recently formed community-owned non-profit organization behind WISO. Amongst other subjects, they're going to be talking about the value of local reporting and about a project specifically designed to support such reporting. It's called Report for America. Nina and Luke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. So can you tell me a little bit first about what YSO is and who its community is? I'll take that. Yeah, WYSO is, as you said, the NPR station for the Dayton region. We actually serve 13 counties, almost 2 million people in southwest Ohio, just north of Cincinnati and west of Columbus. Dayton is... A really uh, interesting mix of people. It's an old community, a manufacturing community with a lot of higher ed now. A lot of people here from different parts of Ohio. There's a strong Appalachian culture in the Dayton area. We have a large Black community here. A lot of people came up here from Kentucky during and after World War II. So it's a really interesting community that suffered greatly during the last recession. And, you know, now we're just waiting to see what happens after the coronavirus pandemic. Right. So I should say that we're recording this interview on May the 12th of 2020. So we're very much in the middle of the coronavirus crisis. Now, Nina, you've been at the station for about how long now in different capacities? I came in January of 2009, so I'm 11 years or so now. And how have you seen the local reporting landscape in the NPR context change over that time? Well, they're really only NPR style reporting that goes on in our area is at WYSO. We've grown the station significantly in the last several years. Luke came on eight years ago as the development director, and since then we've been able to really increase um, the size of our news reporting staff. We just added two people in the last several months, actually. So it's our next strategic goal to grow our local news uh, organization here. That's part of where Report for America comes in. But we feel a really strong urgency to do that now. Like in so many other parts of the United States, local news reporting is slipping away in Ohio. We're losing newspapers at a very rapid rate. The Cleveland Plain Dealer, you may know, just laid off 14 staff members within the last couple of months. And we're all holding our breath here about what's going to happen. The Dayton Daily News just changed hands. Part of its operation changed hands. So we're all kind of cautious and a little bit uh, 
nervous, I should say, about the future of local reporting in uh, this part of the Midwest. It's part of why Luke and I and our staff have really focused on growing our news organization here at WYSO. So Luke, perhaps you could tell us about Report for America. Sure. It's a fairly new organization, but they're having a, a big impact across the country. They've been able to successfully raise a fair amount of money, and they identify partner newsrooms who apply to host a Report for America fellow. And what they do is if if you win, if you are chosen to be a host newsroom for the year, they will pay up to half the salary for a reporter to come work with your team. And they also accept applications from all over the country, hundreds of them, and they vet them and send each host newsroom five finalists to choose from. And then they allow the host newsroom to make the final selection. And I think that what made our application stand out was our focus on the need for environmental reporting here in our community. Can I ask, why did you decide that you wanted somebody to come in and focus on environmental reporting specifically? Because it's underreported in our community and because it's just felt like the most important topic we could be talking about and educating our listeners about, and that there are some uniquely local challenges when it comes to the environmental landscape that have to do with the quality of our water and the impact of big agriculture on water and uh, the impact of the businesses on uh, the health of the environment, especially when you look at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and possible contaminants. So we, we felt like it was not being covered and that maybe that was a beat that we could begin to own in the local media landscape. We're so small, we can't be everything to everyone, but we could probably be a very strong voice as far as environmental reporting in this community, we felt like. I'm curious about this because I guess there are lots of areas you could have asked for a reporter to come in and focus upon. Was it obvious from the start that you were going to ask for somebody to come in and focus on environmental reporting? No, it it, it was not immediately apparent because there are so many other areas that need to be reported on like education and healthcare and the large veteran community here in our area. But after discussing it, we felt like we could be a leader and provide good coverage of the environment if if we could focus our energies there. And so are you comfortable talking about the person who is going to be coming in, taking on that role? Yeah, Nina's been working with him and knew him already, so I'll let you take that one, Nina. Sure. We hired a young man who's from Columbus, Ohio, which is only an hour away, and he went to college here in Yellow Springs at Antioch College. He's going to graduate later this month, actually. His name is Chris Welter, and we first met him in 2017 when he took our Community Voices class. We have a class here at WYSO in a unique kind of community training program where we take about a dozen people a year and we train them in broadcast radio fundamentals. And Chris took our class and a combination of his major at Antioch College, which was environmental science, his, you know, 
lots of time put in at the Antioch College student newspaper called The Record, and a lot of time put in during the Antioch, what they call their co-op program, which is a kind of an ongoing work study option that goes on at Antioch College. So he did several co-ops at law firms and with a local um, land bank called the Tecumseh Land Trust. So he's got already a familiarity with some local land use and environmental issues. Some background working in a law firm makes him understand, you know, how to do data research, how to work on a deadline, um, how to be precise in his writing language. So, you know, we had some strong candidates from all around the country, actually, people with many more years of experience than him, people in graduate school. But um, we felt the combination of his familiarity with our region and his demonstrated interest in local environmental issues was going to really serve him well and serve us well. And it won't take him, you know, six months to figure out where he is and what the major stories are, as it would if we had hired somebody, you know, from New York who would come here and have a perfectly good time, but, you know, then leave the area. We're also very interested in developing our local um, talent here so that young people will stay here and not feel like they have to leave and go to another part of the country to have a meaningful professional career. He sounds like a great fit. And he's starting in June. Is that right? June of 2020? That's right. So people, our listeners should look out for him or listen out for him on WYSO. Yeah. I just want to add one little thing about what I think is so interesting and cool about the Report for America program. Report for America, you know, it has this model which is a program in this country called Teach for America, where young early career teachers are assigned to go to school districts where there's a teacher shortage. Well, that's a similar um, model for Report for America. It's not a permanent assignment. It's a two-year maximum assignment. So it works really well for the station and I think also for young career journalists who are just kind of feeling out what they want to do with their career. So getting assigned to um, a place for a couple of years is kind of a cool opportunity for young people. I know that when I was a young journalist, it would have been very appealing to me. Thanks for adding that perspective. That's great. So you said that Chris Welter, the Report for America young journalist that you've got coming in as the environmental reporter, started in a community voices class that you run. And Luke, am I right in thinking that you also took this class? I did. I I was in the very first class. What was it about? What attracted you to sign up for it? Well, uh, gosh, I've been a lifelong NPR listener and loved the kind of storytelling I was hearing. And I was working with a group of teachers and arts education experts trying to come up with new ways to engage students in the classroom with creative projects. And audio felt like the right place to go. And Nina said that she would train me so that I could go back and then pass along what I learned to the dozens of classroom teachers I was working with. That was how it started. And then I ended up applying for a job here. Oh, perfect. Right. That was eight years ago. So Nina, was this Community Voices class, was this your initiative? 
Well, yeah, I started it along with an Antioch College graduate named Sarah Buckingham, and she and I launched it with the idea that we were going to train people to, you know, put their work on the radio. We take very seriously our public service mission here, and the radio station has a long history of community involvement, and that kind of went away for a while in the early 2000s. And there was a big uproar in the community about that. And so when I was hired in 2009, I realized pretty quickly that bringing the community back into the radio station was going to be the way to make it solid again and to make people trust it again. So we started the training project and it's just paid off in so many ways. Like Luke, for example, we have other staff people who have come to us through Community Voices. We have more than 200 stories a year that go on our airwaves by people who have taken the class. So we've created now, out of nothing, basically an independent producer community that can do stories for WYSO. Everybody gets paid to do those stories now. Uh, Some people are on a contract. Some people just got put on staff. Some people are paid by the piece. But Luke has been able to raise significant amounts of money through various foundations and organizations to support it and various kinds of projects. So we have a youth project now. We have had a, a veterans project for seven years. We have a project of doing rural stories now. We have a project working on the west side of Dayton, which is a predominantly Black community. Just, you know, various kinds of focused projects that allows us to bring voices to our airwaves that wouldn't otherwise be on your typical public radio station. That sounds absolutely fantastic. It's really fun, too. It just opens the doors, and we feel like it's the way that we fulfill our public service mission. In addition to the other programs we do, we also have, I can't remember how many, I want to say 15 community music producers who do volunteer music programs for us. So we're kind of a hybrid station both in terms of our schedule and also in terms of our staffing. Um, We have 16, I think, full-time staff members and more than 20 people who volunteer every week. That used to be called a community station, but most NPR stations, meaning people who are NPR members, don't have that many volunteers anymore the way we do. We we hung on to that model. We think you can hear it on the air. We sound very eclectic, lots of different voices, men and women, young and old. It doesn't sound slick. It sounds pretty funky sometimes, but it really reflects the community. Right. So this is another initiative for getting more local news as well as local stories that might not be so news-based, right? Right. Right. So one of the things I was curious about is we often hear about how print newspaper rooms or media that has traditionally been print-based, but which may have moved to online platforms. We've heard about how those newsrooms are shrinking because of the drop in advertising revenue caused by uh, the rise of the internet and move to online. Has that had a similar effect on radio news? 
The answer is no, uh, because our funding model and our business model is so different. We're non-commercial, so we're not reliant on advertising revenue to pay our bills. Instead, we have thousands of, of listeners who choose to voluntarily make a contribution. So that's one place where we are secure that, you know, if our programming continues to be relevant and vital for them, and if our messaging is inviting enough, they will always donate to us. So that's a huge piece of our annual revenue. It, it's the single largest piece is individual listeners. And then the next largest piece is individual businesses who donate. That veers into the realm of advertising. But at the same time, most of our business supporters are here to support the mission. And then the last piece is the grants world has proven to be excited about what we're doing. The local philanthropic community through family foundations and community foundations have provided, at this point, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of support because they see that we're playing an important role in the community. That's wonderful. A success story. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're proud of our finances, right? I mean, we, we can't deliver our mission without having enough money to do it. And we've, we, we've really cobbled together a mix of funding sources that keep us strong. And we're never overly reliant on one other than that listener support line. But that number has just grown for many years now. So we're a, a leader nationally in the percentage of listeners who donate to their local station. And we're very proud of it. Is that something that you're concerned about in the current climate? We don't know yet the long-term ramifications of the corona crisis, but we know that there's very likely to be an economic downturn of uh, significant proportions. Of course, we're concerned about that. I mean, so far, so good. We've really carefully scrutinized the last couple of months of donations and surprisingly and pleasantly surprised that they have not fallen off yet. But as people lose their jobs or, or redirect their philanthropy to human services, you know, hungry people, sick people, yeah, we, we anticipate a, a drop in revenues in the coming year. But we already have some plans to offset those with, you know, additional kinds of grant writing or, or, or belt tightening. One of the things that's kind of related to this is that in times of global crisis, it seems that people do tend to focus on the need for local news because the news that we're getting in Dayton is actually a matter of life and death for the people of Dayton in this current situation. Are you seeing a lot of people coming to your radio station that hadn't already been listeners in this time? Or is that not something that you can measure? We have a hard time measuring that. The only way that we can measure it for sure is the number of new donors that we have. And we can track that. And each year we add new members to the family, new donors. But yeah, your, your question about attracting new listeners, it, it's elusive. We do get audience measurements from a company called Nielsen. So we have a sense of the headcount of the number of people who listen each week. But it's hard to know who of those are recent arrivals, I guess you could say. Okay. On a related note, and maybe this is a question for Nina, one of the things I've read is that since the 2016 US presidential election, during which time there was a lot of discourse about the rise of fake news, I understand that more and more people are turning to public broadcasting, radio or television 
because there is a feeling that these are sources of reliable news. Is this something that you're aware of? Yes, we hear that from people all the time. When we have our fund drives, and we still do these old-fashioned kind of fund drives where we literally go on the air and ask people to call us, and we do it twice a year for a week at a time. And when we do that, we ask them to take a minute and talk to the phone volunteers and tell them, why did you call? And I'd say the most frequent response is, it's news I can trust. So I think that is work that we have done, but also work that NPR has done over its, you know, it's coming up on 50 years now of public service journalism. And it's proven to be steady and reliable and growing and desirable. So we ride on the coattails of of those NPR news programs every single day. And we do our best to match the quality of their programming. I worked at NPR in the early part of my career. So I have a lot of exposure to those values and the kind of caliber of people that work for NPR. So it can be done at the local level. NPR doesn't have a lock on that kind of work. And that's why here at WYSO, we have really set our sights now on major growth in our local news because we know people want it. So we're recording this interview remotely. We're all in different locations. I'm in Columbus and you are both at your various locations in Yellow Springs. How have you been able to report and gather news during this crisis where in-person interaction is such a fraught engagement? Luke sits in on the news meeting every morning, so I'm going to let him answer that question. You know, once our news team figured out the best remote recording technology, they were off to the races. You know, once the sound quality was no longer a barrier, they were conducting phone interviews and Skype interviews and video chats with interview subjects all over the place. They were still able to find the story and find people on the ground who could speak to local issues. And rather than visiting them in person, they were just conducting their interviews remotely. With the exception of a few in-person events where we purchased boom microphone stands so that they could safely record audio from a distance. For the most part, our news gathering has been remote and we have more stories than we know what to do with. I mean, we're cranking out half a dozen local stories a day that are being inserted into the news magazines and then shared out on the website. Are there any particular stories that have caught your attention that you would like to talk about? I'll share one that I've had a a personal interaction with. It's the first time this has happened in my eight years at the station. There's a wave of evictions coming due to the coronavirus and people being laid off and their hourly jobs being, you know, their, their hours reduced. And one of our reporters was interested in telling this story and interviewed a woman who had lost her job because the restaurant closed where she had been working and was being threatened with eviction from her apartment. And at at the end of the story, she actually said, you know, I, I offered my landlord this much and it wasn't the full amount of the rent and he wouldn't take it. So I'm not sure what my 11 year old daughter and I are going to do. And it was reported in a very professional, objective way. It wasn't 
manipulating anyone. It was just the facts. But seven people contacted the station immediately after the story aired, asking if the station was willing to accept donations so that this woman could pay her rent and not have to move out of her house. (laughs) I thought that was wonderful. And we're not in the business of collecting donations for people, right? I mean, we present the information so that the listeners can then take action as they see fit. But in this instance, we agreed to help facilitate that. That is such a heartwarming story. Thank you. Nina, do you have any stories from this time that made a particular impression on you? Well, um, the news folks are doing, as Luke said, a lot of work every day. But it also comes to mind for me a project that we started the first week called Alone Together, where we asked our listeners to call in with you know voice memo recordings or to just record on an answering machine and tell us what they were doing. Like, how are you surviving now that we're in quarantine? What are you doing? And we had a call from a doctor who was the head of the COVID-19 task force at one of the major hospitals. And he just wanted to talk about how powerfully dedicated his staff was and how everybody had stepped up to work extra hours, how community organizations had donated food so people wouldn't have to leave the building to go to lunch. And it was just incredibly heartfelt and very moving. We didn't intend to use it as a news story, but we ended up putting it on one of our news magazines because of who he was and because there was so much fear in the community about whether or not our hospitals would be swamped you know, by COVID-19 cases, which turned out not to happen here. All of the self-distancing so far has been fairly successful in our part of Ohio. So our hospitals never got overwhelmed the way um, your listeners may have heard um, was going on in New York and Detroit and also New Orleans and some other places around the country. We just haven't had that kind of tsunami. So, you know, that kind of individual testimonial of a fellow citizen speaking from the heart, to me, radio does that so powerfully well and delivers that kind of community message of this is somebody that could live next door to you and here's how he's coping and here's how his staff members are coping with this. So that will stick out for me as a very memorable contribution by one of our listeners on the air. That's another really heartwarming story. Thank you for sharing that because I think we all need them at this time. I think I've covered the main things I wanted to cover. I guess I'll ask one more question. So we've been talking a lot about local reporting. What do you think is lost when there isn't local reporting? I'll take a crack at that, and I know Nina will have a good answer too. I think you see nationally, young people are very engaged in national political issues, and they're talking about it ad nauseum and on social media and they're attending political events. But if you ask them, you know, what they know about their local political elections or what their local city council is doing or what their local school board is voting on, they might really have a hard time answering that question. So you see this high level of engagement with national politics, but a a real lack of knowledge or engagement with local politics. And I think that that's what gets lost when small community papers are closing their doors or being diminished 
in their ability to bring you local news. And we're trying to step up and provide that local news so that people can be engaged in their local community as well as their national community. That's great. Uh, Nina, did you want to add something to that? I think that's a really spot on answer. For me, I started my career in a newsroom in a small town and I experienced that phenomenon, you know, like if I didn't bring that story, it wouldn't get told. And it's a huge responsibility for a newsroom, especially in a rural area where there may be nobody representing the public at a county commissioner's meeting or a zoning board of appeals meeting or, you know, a meeting that might seem very minor and unimportant where major decisions are getting made every day without public input. Not that they're hiding them, but there's just nobody there on behalf of the public. So we're losing rural reporting drastically in this country and now even in the cities as well. So it's vital for our democracy that it function properly and people need to know what's happening so they can be informed voters, right? I don't know how you make a decision and go to the polls without knowing what's going on locally, right? I mean, I have not seen a study that shows a correlation, but who would be surprised to see that people who don't know what's going on don't go to vote, right? Right. So let us assume that the opposite is true. The more people know, the more they feel engaged, the more they feel that their vote has some meaning. I like to believe that. And it motivates me every day when I am making decisions about what stories do we need to tell. And they can be hard news stories or even like more emotional, softer stories. But we need to know what are the values of our community? Are these people in you know my neighbor's issues? What can I do to help them if I don't know what's up with their lives? So it's just too easy to live isolated from each other. We can live in our, you know, socioeconomic bubbles. We spend time with people like us and we get isolated from other people in our community. So I think local reporting bridges those gaps, at least when it's doing its job, it should do that. Well, Nina Ellis and Luke Dennis, you're both wonderful advocates for the value of local reporting. Thanks so much for joining us on this Ohio Humanities Real Issues, Real Conversations podcast to share your insights. Thank you, Rachel. It's my pleasure. Nina Ellis and Luke Dennis from WYSO, which is the Greater Dayton Area's only NPR news station. I'm Rachel Hopkin, and you've been listening to Real Issues, Real Conversations, which is a production of Ohio Humanities, the state-based partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. The views expressed here don't necessarily reflect those of the National Endowment. This program is part of Democracy and the Informed Citizen, an initiative administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils. The project seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. Many thanks to the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation for their generous support of this initiative and the Pulitzer Prizes for their partnership. Sokolovsky Music at sokolovskymusic.com provided the opening and closing tracks To learn more about Ohio Humanities podcasts and other projects and programs, please visit ohiohumanities.org.